She's Julie Roxanne. And he's Alistair. And, and this, this is, is Far Out. Out, a podcast about stepping off the beaten path and learning to live from our center. So I'm the self-appointed Craigslist king. <laughs> I, I call myself that. I thought someone else gave you that nickname. It's actually my title on uh, LinkedIn, Craigslist King. <laughs> no, it's not. We are so motivated to make money that we think saving money is something different. If you can stop money going out, it's as good as earning money. It's just not as sexy. Over my career as a Craigslist King, <laughs> This is not a joke. I've saved tens of thousands of dollars. Because if you're uncomfortable with sales, I can guarantee you, you're leaving a lot of money on the table in your life. We are so motivated to earn money, to maximize income and profit. This we is Americans, maybe. I don't know, maybe it's not French. It doesn't seem like it when I go to the shop here in France. It's barely ever open, especially not if it's around lunchtime, which is like 10.30 to somewhere around two. And we're much more conscious of this now with the caravan because we have to manage all of our waste. Literally, we bury our poop. Because of this, we see things as things that are used. There's something we can use and that's something that we own and that we have to keep and protect at all costs. And sooner or later, we're all going to end up in the earth, and then we can't bring any of it with us. We're always renting things. Hello, everyone. Hey there. Welcome to a new episode of Farah Podcast. Hot off the press. Hot off the press. And this one is about the life-changing magic of buying other people's junk. It's something that we are super passionate about, and we have prepared a great episode for you. Yeah, we've actually probably spent way too much time thinking about this. <laughs> I don't know if anyone else thinks is, about this as much as we do. Is there anything that we don't spend way too much time thinking about, Alistair? Fair. Good point. <laughs> Good point. We like to think. We do. And I think we should get into it. Let's get into it. Good morning, good morning, good morning. <laughs> you do that because you know it's going to make me laugh. <laughs> true. This is true. <laughs> hello, Alster. And hello Julie to Roxanne. everyone. Good morning. I think I said that. Yes. <laughs> so we have a few updates this morning. Yes, before we jump in. The first and most important is that we got a new box of incense. <laughs> That is by far the most important of all of our updates. Yeah, yes. it's 120, 150 sticks. I don't know, but it's a new assortment. We're pretty excited about it. We haven't finished our other two boxes yet. We're still working on them, but hey, what the hell? Why yeah. not get a third box? So we did, and we are burning white sage this morning, and it smells divine. It smells. I was going to use the word divine. It smells really good. Nice choice. Second big update, guys. Alistair shaved his beard. I did. I did. I've had a beard running since before my brother's wedding last summer. It so was starting to get pretty wild. It was pretty crazy. Sometimes when people hadn't seen me for a long time and we did a video chat or a video conference, the first thing people would say is like, wow, that beard. 
<laughs> it's nice to see your face again. I yeah. like the beard, but it's nice to see your face again. So, so I'm rocking a little bit of like, uh, a little bit of stubble, like, because mm -hmm. I don't, I don't like to shave every day. Oh, That's yeah. annoying. That's a pain. And then I got a nice big. I kept the mustache oh, from the beard. You're rocking that mustache. So it's almost like a. It's kind of like a handlebar mustache, <laughs> and it's pretty rad. Yes. Depending on my hair looks, I either look like uh, trailer trash. Or a young, tenured philosophy professor at a small liberal arts college. Pretty wide spectrum. Yes. <laughs> and I gave you a haircut that same day. That was a nice oh. Sunday. We took, uh, we did a little hair trimming. A little self-care. Yeah. yeah, a little self-care. Nice. We do have one other update. Not as big as these two. Uh, we have a date for the wedding. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely not as big. No, we've made we've made some great progress on the wedding planning and if you guys remember from our we're engaged episode that was not very clear what we wanted to do and how it was going to be. It's turning out that it's going to be really nice. It's early May. Yeah. May 11th. We are doing it in Marseille. In Marseille. And we have a venue which is awesome, like awesome run by two amazing really cool people 100% vegetarian and they're gonna do vegan gluten-free for us and just really getting started with a bed and breakfast and doing it in an ethical local way it just kind of fell into our lap it was the first place we visited because it was recommended by your mom we checked it out we fell in love I think they fell in love too yeah and uh, it was just like a no-brainer we're gonna do it there and it's gonna be the first wedding they have there so yeah. we are super pumped and because it's a BNB, we're going to be able to do something that I think both separately we had in mind, which was have a celebration over the weekend and have a breakfast as well. And which makes sense. We're going to have about 15 people there, just close family on both sides. Actually, in the very beginning, we we're thinking, hey, why not just go get married by ourselves? But then my mom said, well, if anyone else is there, I'm there. My and your mom, mom said... I'm there. <laughs> yeah, my mom wouldn't take this for an answer, like wouldn't take us doing it on our own. And after struggling with the whole who to invite, how to invite all this, I think it's going to be really nice because we have the people we really want there. And also we know that it's going to be a celebration because there's those people. Yeah, I mean, I think there's definitely other people I would like to have at a wedding, but yes, it's in France and it's very short notice it's not going to be a huge ceremony and I you know there's a bit of an obligation that comes with the wedding invite and it I didn't want it to be a big thing so there's other people that I wanted to include in the celebration which is why we will probably have some sort of uh, event when we were back in the U.S. over the summer but we were for this kind of thing uh, because also your family mainly speaks French, my family mainly speaks English, it didn't make sense to have a big thing, and we didn't want to do a big thing either. We didn't want to, no. let's be real. Yeah, so we just invited very close family, basically our nuclear families. Yes. I think it's going to be nice, though, and I think I'm actually happier we're doing it this way than doing it by ourselves, because it is. there's a certain energy that other people bring to it, and it's going to be a lot of fun. Yeah, and it's insanely simple. There's... The food and the place. There is a, a ta time at City Hall. Maybe a little like impromptu ceremony or words on the beach. I already have my dress and it links to what we're going to talk about today. And I already have my shoes. I already have everything. It's not going to be... It's casual. Yeah. We're telling people 
Sunday afternoon barbecue kind of casual. Yeah, please. we're telling them don't don't wear a suit because then you're gonna look better than the bride and the groom. <laughs> and your dad is ignoring that. Yeah, advice. I think my dad my dad's already ignoring that. Yeah, it's my daughter's like, wedding. I'm wearing a suit. Yeah, yeah, okay. He's gonna wear a suit. Like, all, all right, right. Well, I'm be wearing jeans and a t-shirt. Well, not a t-shirt. I won't be wearing a t-shirt. I'll wear a button-up. Come on, be classy. I think we're gonna look nice. And my sister-in-law is doing the pictures, so we're still gonna have great pictures. And the only kind of fancy thing that I'm gonna do, which is not really that fancy, but to me it is, is I'm gonna have a beautiful flower crown. Yeah, that'll be nice. I think it will be really nice. I'm excited for it. And I'm still pushing for the kale bouquet, although there's some logistical problems. <laughs> Finding a bunch of kale in Marseille at that time of the year might be tough, <laughs> but I think it's important. If we don't have that, keep in mind that we'll probably have a cauliflower and Romanesca like table decoration. Yeah, your so. mom's on, on top of that. That would be cool. So that's all right. Those are the updates. And let's move on to today's episode. Yeah. So this episode is the life-changing magic of buying other people's junk. Yes. Yes. There's been a big kind of craze. I, I was reading an article just the other day about, uh, you know, the Marie Kondo method. My mom's doing the Marie Kondo method with a, like, with a kind of consultant who's yeah. a friend of the family. And I've read the book. It was really helpful for me. The life change. We're talking about Marie Kondo's book, The Life-Changing Magic of Tidying Up. Uh -huh. And I read that when I sold all my stuff back in San Diego before I started traveling. Super helpful. Uh, and I was reading an article recently that in the U.S., thrift shops and like donation centers you know secondhand shops are actually becoming i don't know if this is true this is the what the article reported overburdened by the amount of donations that are coming in and they think it's partly to do with this mary kondo thing and part of the reason they think it is is because everyone is thanking the things before they give them oh, to them. God. so they're, they're having like this <laughs> overflow of of stuff coming in, in the thrift shops i guess there could be worse problems if you're a thrift shop but so we thought we'd uh, kind of take a, a contrarian view on this and talk about why you should buy other people's junk. Because there's a lot of really good reasons. <laughs> so we're mainly, we're both big fans of secondhand shopping. I think, Alistair, you come at it from more of a Craigslist type angle. Yeah, well, so I'm, I am uh, the self-appointed Craigslist king. <laughs> I, I call myself that. I thought someone else gave you that nickname. It's actually my title on uh, LinkedIn, Craigslist King. <laughs> no, it's not. <laughs> but really where I come from on this is not so much Craigslist as I come from it from a financial perspective. Mm. I was a finance student in college. I studied money and I've always been passionate about money and the freedom it gives you. Craigslist was a way to save money, basically, especially as a, as a broke college student. Mm. Yeah, for sure. And for me, this is also a, a big component, although this is not the reason I came to it. But I do like that it, it's cheap. Buying secondhand is cheap. And most of the time you can do it and still get as good a quality that you would buy when you buy new. And it really, it boggles me that people even still buy new <laughs> sometimes. Why would you buy this new? There is a perfectly good secondhand shop right around the corner. So you actually come from this from a little bit of a different angle, though. Yes, I. Uh, well, we'll we'll talk more about this later during this episode, but I'm definitely coming at this from a eco 
ethical perspective. I have given this a lot of thought and I think uh, buying new is pretty bad for the planet and I feel better when I'm buying secondhand for those reasons because reusing is very important to me. So we've, we've outlined six main reasons why, uh, why we're so passionate about secondhand shopping, whether it be the Craigslist variety or the thrift shop and secondhand shop yes. variety. And the first one is it's not as risky as you think. Mm-hmm. This is a big one. I've been wheeling and dealing on Craigslist, both selling and buying, for over a decade. And I've been buying and selling things for as low as 10 bucks and as high as 10 grand. I've sold and bought two cars on online classifieds. We bought our caravan through one. And I've uh, bought quite a few other things. I've never had a sketchy situation or been ripped off. The only time on Craigslist where that happened was when I didn't meet the person and I just did it by phone, like they were going to send a check. It was one of those kind of classic scams. I was uh, just out of college, fell for it, got lucky. Uh, I sent it to the wrong address. It got returned. <laughs> that's, that's really... But that's the only time I even got close to getting scammed. Every other time was just people dealing with people. Mm-hmm. It was fine. And I think there's a few basic rules you can follow, especially on, we're talking about Craigslist now. And if you do these, you're going to limit any risk you could have from this or, or most of it. Mm-hmm. The first one is that if it's too good to be true, it probably is. Don't be an idiot. Second one is call and talk to them on the phone because mm. then you get a feeling for what they're like. You get it very quickly if you talk to someone on the phone, you're going to know why they're doing what they're doing, and if they're someone you can trust. Yeah. And if they're not, this is the third one, don't follow up on that. Mm. If you have a bad feeling, don't go with it. Yeah. There's a few other ones. Meet in public, especially if it's going to be something expensive. Yeah, that's seems... Well, almost always meet in public. It's just better that way in the daylight. Mm-hmm. Bring a friend. If it's going to be expensive, Think about bringing a friend. It's a good idea. And a lot of people do that. When we bought when we bought our phone in the U.S., the woman came with a friend, and we were the two of us, and we met met at the market in San Jose, and yeah. it was super easy and very yeah easy. Yeah, and don't work with dealers. If you're gonna get ripped off, it's probably because you're working with a dealer, because they make money by buying things cheap and selling them high. And a lot of times, unfortunately, the way they make that margin is because you don't know how they bought it or how they got it. And a lot of times, if you don't buy direct from the seller, you don't know the item's history. And that's a good that's a good way to make a bad deal. So obviously, those are guidelines for like your safety and, and how to not get ripped off like financially. But I think a lot of people also think that it's risky to buy secondhand because they're going to get a shitty product or something that's going to fail them or that they're going to get scammed on the quality of the product and not just like people are gonna gag you and and put you in the back of their car and roll Mm -hmm. away with you yeah i think a lot of people don't realize that a lot of the time buying new is not a good deal there's the classic example of a car when it rolls off the lot is worth 30 40 percent less as soon as it comes off the lot and this is true for a lot of items as soon as it's out of the store it's worth a lot less Mm. and you have to ask okay well why is that It's because you no longer know with certainty, at least this is part of the reason, 
that you no longer know with certainty where, you, where the item's history, where you're getting it from. When you buy it new, you know it's new. You know it hasn't been used. You, there's no defects. So you have to do a little bit of that work when you're talking to the person. You've got to get some background and just make sure his story checks out and that, you know, if he did get it new, uh, a second copy new for his birthday and he needs to get rid of an extra one, that it hasn't been opened and used and whatnot. But this, this simple kind of rule of the market that if it's not new from the manufacturer, it's 30%, 40% cheaper, that is part of your opportunity. As soon as it's in someone's hands no one's going to pay what they would at the shop mm. because there is a little bit more risk, but it's way overvalued that risk. So you can get things at a very good discount just because someone else is selling them to you than the original manufacturer. And this is part of the opportunity. There's one other thing here, which is that I think many people overpay because they don't want to feel stupid. They don't want to be wrong. Mm. It's not that it's really that risky it's the emotional risk of doing something in a slightly unconventional way, using your judgment, and what if it goes wrong? Then it's all your fault. You should have bought it new. Mm-hmm. And I think people just aren't willing to deal with that pain. It does happen once in a while, but it's rare. And if you do this as a habit, you're going to pay for it 10 times over with all your other purchases. It's really not a factor. But yeah. I think that emotional risk... A psychological risk is so overvalued in people's minds that they're willing to just overpay for things. But it's terrifying, right? You know, the shame you feel when you bought something secondhand. Everyone in your family, there's always one person in your family that thinks that always buys new everything. And they're like, oh, it's not a good idea. I wouldn't trust this. I don't. And then if it fails, they're going to be the first people to tell you, like, I told you so, man, should have bought new and yeah, you just have to be willing to confront that. And sometimes you're like, yeah, okay, I gambled and I failed, but you keep paying new and you're losing way more money than I am. Yeah. And I'm not making installment payments, buddy. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So two, your junk is valuable to other people. Yes. So much. Yeah. And this is kind of an extension from number one. Other people have different needs and wants than you. And it's, an, it's, it's almost impossible to know what all those are. There are a lot of really kind of strange scenarios. The first example is this caravan we're sitting in. Yes, for sure. The people who bought it, had they bought it with the intention of renovating it and start traveling with it. And the guy had a situation where he had like a double bypass surgery on his heart or something. And then all of a sudden, this was not their priority anymore. And this was just sitting in their yard waiting for someone else. And it really felt like we just took this from them. You know, when we paid them at the end, he said, you have no idea how big of a thorn you're taking off of my foot. It's, it's that, it's that sort of thing. It was junk to them. They couldn't do anything with this. It was taking up space. But to us, this is our home. We've done great things in it. And now it's our home. Yeah, this is so Chana valuable. Masala. Yeah, it's Chana Masala. Another good example was when we bought the caravan, there was a bed frame in the bedroom and it was made out of wood slats and it expanded on springs so that like the top lifted off and you could put stuff inside and then put it back down. Mm -hmm. uh, we wanted a queen size mattress, so we had to get rid of it because it was a full. 
we put it on Le Bon Coin, which is, it's the good corner. It's, it's the Craigslist version in France. Mm -hmm. And <laughs> our neighbor, Bruce, yes. who we buy plants from, <laughs> actually contacted you about it. Yeah. And he ended up buying it. And it's been perfect for him. Yes. For us, it was junk. Like, we were going to take it to the dump if, if no one else bought it. And this is great because now he gets to use it instead of it going into a landfill. And we made a little bit of cash. Yeah, and we made like 50 or 60 euros. Yeah. I get a lot of joy out of that, you know, knowing that what I have that kind of sucks to me or that's a pain is going to be super helpful for other people. I get so much joy from that. It's ridiculous. And I get a lot of joy from turning my drunk into cash. <laughs> <laughs> And that's what I would say here. It's just that, you know, if you're going to do the Marie Kondo method or whatever, you're getting rid of a bunch of stuff, don't just give it away. If you put it in a little bit of time and effort, if you have the time and effort, you can turn that back into cash. And making a habit of that will bring down your cost for things. It will bring back down your, your just your living expenses. You will live a more affordable lifestyle. There's a good example of this that I have, which is my Mazda 3 hatch that I recently just sold. I bought it back in like 2011, I think. I think it was 2011. I bought it secondhand. And another good example of what we were talking about earlier, which is that it was in pristine condition. It was the guy's mom's car and it had been parked in her garage most of the time. She barely ever drove it. It had 30,000 miles on it, even though it was 2007. So it was almost like brand new. He had tuned it up and done all the maintenance. He just needed to get rid of it because I think They were putting his mom in a home and they needed to pay for the home. Mm. So he needed cash. I found this. I got lucky. I had been looking for a long time. I was the first person to pick up the phone and call him. There was a massive line behind me for people that wanted it. Because he put it at a really fair price. It was $11,500. I test drove it. The next day I showed up with a brown bag of cash. $11,500. And this is where the tips I said before come in handy. I came with a friend. We did it in a public space in daylight. He also showed up with a friend. I had met him before. So this is how we made sure it was safe. Obviously, you don't show up with that much cash on, on the first Oh, no, definitely not. On the first yeah, meeting. something like that, you don't, don't show up with the cash. No. And I sold it uh, last year, 2018 after driving it for about seven years and getting a lot of use out of it, I think I put about 50, 60,000 miles on it. And we did a, a glorious 4,000 mile road trip through California just before I sold it, which yeah. is great. We went all the way down to San Diego and all the way up to Portland. Yeah. I sold it to a high school kid who had been working at the family restaurant and putting away money to get his first car. And he paid me 5,500 for it. I did very little maintenance, only the scheduled maintenance through the time I owned the car. There were no problems with the car. I ended up spending, you know, not including the maintenance, but just thinking about the, the okay. cost of the car. It was, what, $6,000. So it, it wasn't actually $11,500 because I got some money back. Granted, it's a little bit depreciated because of inflation and whatnot, but let's not get complicated. I got a bunch of money back that I could use somewhere else. It was yeah. an asset. Yeah. And, uh, and I think This is a really good way to think about the things we're buying, is that they will have value when we sell them as well. Yeah, this is something that you think about a lot, and, and you've definitely helped me see that. I'm more on the secondhand shop. Like, I'm more for, 
like clothing kind of things or like small items. But for big things, you've taught me this. And I think you're, you're so right. Like I'm always the one saying like, let's just buy a beat up car that's like 600 euros and then we'll just like burn it to the ground when we're done or something. And you're like, no, buy something that has value, use it and then resell it. But for me, it's like, there's so much hassle. But once you figure it out though, it's not so much hassle. It's just takes a little bit of time. Yes, but it's better for everyone. I just think it's, it's, it's such a good way to approach this. It does mean you need to understand the market and what you're buying, which you probably should anyway. Mm. There's one other small example I'll give here just because it's one of my personal victories over the years is I bought a bed frame from Ikea, like one of the standard bed frames back when I started college. Mm. I used it for three or four years. I, I sold it when I, I left San Diego. So I, I used it for another actually like five years, mm. six years after college. I bought it for 200 bucks. Someone bought it off me for 70 bucks. That's a amazing. used queen bed frame from Ikea. Still has value, even Ikea. We're just not trained to think like this in a culture who always is focused on new and just throws everything away mm -hmm. and just gets rid of it. And I think there's so much value in looking at what you already have and realizing that you might not need it anymore but you don't know why someone else might want it. So put it up there, give it a chance. The third point we wanted to touch on is doing this is an investment on yourself. Yes, in two ways. First, you're spending a lot less to acquire the things you want and need. It's cheaper, it's a cheaper mode of life, so you're saving money. You can't buy things off Craigslist with a credit card. Mm. And you're forced to pay cash. Yeah. When I went to go buy my car, every car I've, I've bought or vehicle, I've always had to pay cash. I had to have it in the bank. And this forces us to only spend what we already have. The second is you're recouping some of your costs when you sell it, which you can then reinvest into other things. So again, you're spending less. Over my career as a Craigslist king... <laughs> This is not a joke. I've saved tens of thousands of dollars from buying secondhand, a lot of times brand new. I bought my MacBook Air brand new from a guy who got given one who already had one. It was mm. still in the box. Wow. And on that purchase, which I got at a very deep discount from the Apple retail, I sold my old MacBook for half its value still, so I put that $400 toward the new one and ended up only paying $300 for a brand new MacBook. Wow. I think something I want to jump in and mention here is that you, you say you've saved tens of thousands of dollars, and I keep thinking in the ways that I thought about this before is that, yeah, but this is such a hassle. Doing those things is, is more hassle than like going to the shop, buying it new, end of story, and then like either storing it somewhere and never using it or throwing it away or whatever. But something you taught me, especially when we got to France and we started to, and we needed to buy a car and you had to coach me through this because I, I wasn't trained and also it was very intimidating for me as a woman to go ahead and buy a car secondhand, but you couldn't do it yourself because you don't speak French. One thing that, that you definitely taught me is This hassle is the work. This is your, the way you think about it is like, yes, I put in work, but I'm getting paid 
those tens of thousands of dollars that you saved over a decade. This is the, this is the work. And you say that a lot I, I, for other things too, but you always mention that when I'm like, oh, come on, let's just forget about it, not do it this way, do it the easiest way. You're like, no, think about it like you're working for that money that you're saving. Yeah, employ yourself. We are so motivated to earn money, to maximize income and profit. This we is Americans, maybe. I don't know. Maybe it's not French. It doesn't seem like it when I go to the shop here in France. It's barely ever open, especially not if it's around lunchtime, which is like 10.30 to somewhere around 2. Wrong. Not true. Not 10.30. Okay. A bit of an exaggeration, but it's true. The French just do not give a damn. You're right. But we are so motivated to make money that we think saving money is something different. Mm -hmm. And I think the mental hack that, that can help have some motivation around this is it's not a hassle if you, it's a job. And by me doing these things, which is a little bit of work, I'm earning money. It's the same as saving, saving, earning, whatever. It's money that you're going to have for, as a result of the effort you put in. But see, I think this is where it's so hard because when you say earning and saving, I think for me on some level and for a lot of people, those are not the same things. Earning, you get a very clear uh, inflow of money that comes onto your account that you can see on your bank statement that says plus something. Saving money, there's not ever a proof that you, you know, like it never shows up because of a, uh, an, an institution. No one tells you, oh, yes, you have saved this, so it's plus this. This know? is why you need to highlight it for yourself. Mm-hmm. And I think it's helpful here to think about this as a system. And let's make it very simple and say you have one bank account and that's all your money. This is your stock of cash. There's two ways that this can be affected. Money coming in, money going out. They both have the same impact. Mm -hmm. They just go in different directions. So you can earn money and bring it in. You can sell things and get cash that you can kind of think about it like a tree storing sunlight. It's the same general idea, just like, okay, well, I'm going to now turn this back into the cash. And of course, it depreciates a bit, but there's still, it still has some value if you can link it with someone that values it. And that's what you're doing. And it's easier and easier these days with online marketplaces to do that. All you have to do is throw it up, make a little bit of effort, and you can make connections that otherwise would be hard to do. We can all be buyers and sellers in that way. The same thing on the other side. If you can stop money going out, it's as good as earning money. It's just not as sexy in a lot of ways. And I think there's a status thing around this too, and, and we'll get maybe that a little bit later. So that's an easy mental hack that can give you motivation in the beginning if you are thinking it's a bit of a hassle. I think there's intrinsic reasons why to do this too, and these are actually some of the other reasons on our list here that we're going to go down to. But before we go there, there's another reason that this is an investment in you. And this one is because you learn how to buy and sell and negotiate. These are parts of the human experience or have been for basically as long as... as, long as Agriculture was around. Yeah, exactly. So a long time. You know, you go to India and you're going to go haggle for everything. For everything from a tuk-tuk ride to your orange and banana that you want to have for lunch. Everything's on the menu to, to haggle. But 
in America, we have this culture where it's like, oh, no, now we go to professionals to buy things. But negotiating is still an incredibly valuable life skill, as is communicating and selling and buying. You're always selling yourself every day. You're always selling yourself. And a lot of people shy away from this because sales makes them uncomfortable. And if that's you, that's exactly why you should do this. Because if you're uncomfortable with sales, I can guarantee you, you're leaving a lot of money on the table in your life. I think I just have a f quick funny anecdote to think about this because I used to be so uncomfortable around sales. It's so vulnerable, man. It's like putting yourself out there is saying, hey, I'm worth this or hey, I'm not willing to pay more than this. Then people can like judge you and tell you like, no, this is not how we do it. You know, like it, it is a place of confrontation. Sales is usually a place of confrontation because you have different needs as the other person. And everyone's trying to get heard. So it's a really strange place that we're, I didn't feel really comfortable with this, but I can see how this is changing. And <laughs> recently I went to my local decathlon, which is like REI or whatever you would call this. And I went to buy a yoga mat. I think this was because I spent enough time in Asia now and also because I'm now spending enough time on Craigslist doing the haggling and stuff. But I ended up wanting a, a yoga mat that they didn't have in stock anymore, but they had like the exposition model, the one that they put out. And so it was kind of dirty, and but it was in great condition. And the, the yoga mat was like 20, 30 euros to begin with. There was a sales on it, which, and so it was 25. And the guy was like... You know what? Because it was the, the model that we used for showing it to people. I can do it like 15 for you. And then like it went really fast in my head. We were just the two of us in the aisle. And I was like, are you the sole decider on this? And he looked at me and said, yes. I, I mean, yeah. And I was like, how about 13? <laughs> And he kind of like chuckled and he said, of course, no problem. He didn't give, he, he didn't care. He was not like the owner of the shop or anything, but, and it's not like, oh, I saved two euros. I should be really proud. It's just, I think there is something there about will be being willing to give another counter proposition and see if they say yes or no. If they say no, I've tried at least. You don't know how proud I was of you when I heard that you did that. <laughs> I was so proud. I think you made a lot of good points. It's always a question. Mm. We, you know, you go into the shops and they're always going to say no because that's their policy. But life is a negotiation and anything can be negotiated. And there's a lot of freedom in that. And you can come up with a lot of creative solutions that work really well for everyone. Maybe in that case, that, that, that case was great. <laughs> I didn't want to say 10. I thought if I say 10, he's going to say no. This morning I was thinking about it again. I'm, like, sure, I'm sure he would have said yes, but <laughs> I didn't want to be too crazy. But it felt so like symbolic that I would in an established shop in Europe feel comfortable doing this. There's a few other things I'd say about this. Is one, it never hurts to ask a question. All that can happen is you can be denied. I think a lot of people are really scared about that rejection and denial. I remember when I started doing cold calls when I was working at my first startup, I remember I would sit in the office and I was sweating mm. and just freaking out. And one time my boss came in and it's just like, dude, just what? It's not that big a deal. Just get on the phone and, and make the calls. And it's true. As soon as you start getting on the phone and making the calls and you get rejected a few times, I've even been told to, you know, like people have used some pretty explicative language. <laughs> I, 
toward me. But you just, after you do a few, you're like, oh, all right, that's how it feels. I'm still here. I'm still alive. Nothing's really changed. And then after the first few, it gets pretty easy. And then I get a little bit more comfortable. So it's, you can always ask. There, I heard a podcast one time. Uh, this guy explored this concept of the, the good guy discount. It, it was pretty funny. He was going around and just asking for a good guy discount on everything. So kind of awkward. Yeah. But, and, and he was uncomfortable. This is not something he did, but, it, but he'd been, he was experimenting with it. And so with anything, from coffee to whatever he was buying, he'd be like, so can I get a good guy discount <laughs> for being a good guy? <laughs> it worked half the time. Yes. So you can always ask. Everything's up for negotiation. Yeah, I actually, I remember reading about this and the laws. I mean, in France, it feels, I'm sure it's probably the same in the U.S., but I can only speak from my experience, is you go to the shops and you feel like the price tag is the price tag. There's no negotiating off of the price tag. Turns out by law, you can. There's like many ways you can ask for, for money off of that price tag and they could, if they, it's their choice ultimately, but they could give it to you if they wanted. And it if, you've, always, if yeah. you've ever been on the other side of that transaction, I have worked at startups my whole life. So I've been coming up with the prices my whole life. You realize how arbitrary that is, <laughs> that someone's just deciding, you know, it's like, it's not, there's no, nothing's official about this. It's like someone said, hmm. We kind of pay around that much. I'd like to make that much. Let's put the price there and see if people buy it. Mm -hmm. That's kind of what happens for the most part. Yeah. So you can always ask. And if you guys can't meet, then you, you walk away. That's fine. Another thing is that having this kind of... I, I can hear it in you as you talk about this. There's a self-confidence you gain from just realizing you can represent yourself. And you can say, hey, this is what I want or this is what I need. Are you willing to work with me on that? And if not, you walk away. There's a massive amount of power in that. And I think that carries on into every aspect of your life. It doesn't have to be aggressive, but you can be assertive in your life. And you can know what you need, what you want, and what you're willing to pay for it. And you kind of take your power back on this. Amen to that. I'm going to say one more because we both spent a lot of time in Asia. And in Asia, like I said before, everything is a haggle. And... You know what? Sometimes if you don't haggle with the person, they're going to be upset. Oh, it's hell yes. Because it's a dance. You said it's a confrontation. That is the normal way of thinking about it in the West. But I think in other cultures, it's a dance. It's an art form. And when we're in Asia, we don't think, and this is, you know, this is the common tourist trap, is you, you go into Asia and you think, oh, well, it's so cheap in my country, so whatever. And uh -huh. that's... And that's like why we get looked at as walking wallets over there. But when we're there, we will negotiate based on the value of the rupees or whatever currency we're using and whatever the current market price is. And, yes. if we, and sometimes I'll get into it with, with an Indian guy over five, ten rupees, you yeah. know, because it's just... It's part of it. But and 5, 10 rupees is a samosa that you can have yeah, later as a snack. Yeah, because you know? the money doesn't have, like, it's not valuable on its own. It's only valuable in what it you can exchange it for. Mm -hmm. In India, you can exchange 10 rupees for a samosa or a box of incense or a couple oranges probably. Yeah. So 
there's this whole dance with it. I remember one time I was in Jaisalmer. I was buying a large amount of goods that I was going to send home for a lot of family members who had given me some money to do so. And I was buying some like pashmina scarves that were just gorgeous hand-woven scarves in Rajasthan. And <laughs> I sat at the table and we were going back and forth. This guy, he sits across from me. We both have a chai. You always have chai tea of when you're course. negotiating. And... I had gotten like 10 or 15. It was a big sale for this guy. And these were expensive scarves by Indian standards. And uh, I had gone with an Indian friend of mine who was helping me. I had purchased some stuff from him. He was a shopkeeper in the town. And so he was taking me around, you know, because you never know. These guys all have like kind of connections and you never know what's going on in India. But he was helping me find the things I needed. And uh, I felt like I could trust him. And so he was kind of like my counterpart in the negotiations. And we went back and forth for like half an hour to the point where the guy was yelling at me. And then at one point he took all the scarves off the table and just said, no deal. Totally irrational. Like we had gotten to this point, like I was, we were, I was kind of working him. Mm -hmm. We were trying to get to this point. And then at some point he pulls the, uh, forget it, no deal, takes it all off the table. I salvaged the situation and... I end up buying just a bit higher than I wanted. Not a lot, but a little bit higher. I walk out of the shop with my Indian buddy. And the first thing he says is, you should have waited. We were already 30, 40 minutes into negotiation. And he said, I caved too soon. He was going to give me the price if I just waited. And I was just like, oh my God. But it's, it's, it's such an important part of the way, the communication. There's this great scene in Life of Brian by Monty Python, where they play this dynamic of the haggling at a market in Israel. Absolutely amazing. If it's in, if it's on YouTube, we'll link it down below so you get an idea. If you've never been to a country where they haggle, amazing. It's a load of fun too. It's a very different mindset, but it's so fun. So number four, and this one you're very passionate about. This one, this one is my thing. It's that when you buy secondhand, everybody wins. I was never a big shopper, but I was still a woman living in a city, so I probably had more clothes than I needed. And I started buying secondhand around three to four years ago, I want to say, because I watched a documentary that's on Netflix that's called The True Cost. This documentary explores the industry of fast fashion and all those H&M and Zara and all those brands and how the clothes are made, and the impact it has on the people, on the environment. I can't remember any of the numbers that are in there, but it's appalling. Like, over the last 20 years, we have tripled, quadrupled, probably even more than that, our consumption of clothing. How people just, like oh, I have a party Saturday, I'm going to buy a new dress. It's, there's always a reason to buy something new because it's so cheap. And I used to do that. When I, when I had like a time off on the Saturday afternoon or something and I wanted to feel, feel good about myself, I would go into H&M and I would just want to buy like random something. And then I would come out with like four or five different items because it cost me literally nothing to, to buy all that. And after seeing this documentary, which we'll link below, I 
completely shifted the way I thought about this. There is so many reasons not to buy new. Yeah, and basically there's so many reasons to buy secondhand, which is some of the some of them we're exploring. A lot of them are probably depending on where you're at in life, but the the thing is when you buy secondhand, the community benefits. You as the seller or buyer benefit. The person buying or selling from you benefits. There, there's an exchange of value and everyone tends to win from that. And the community benefits. And the way the community benefits is, one, if you're buying from a thrift shop, usually those are charities a lot of times or they're doing some sort of public service. So you're supporting that. But the other way is if you're buying on Craigslist or whatnot. And I think this one is important, is that you meet other people in your community that you might not have met otherwise. And I have run into people that I didn't know were living around me with very different perspectives, living in completely different bubbles of life, Mm -hmm. yet just a few miles away from me. And it can be fascinating and it can be very interesting that the people you meet. And I think there's a sense of connection, even if it's very small, there is a connection. You are, you are trading something. And I think this builds a certain sense of community or, or understanding or, greater perspective of the place you live in and the other people who share that space with you. Yeah, and I think this is not totally related to this, but I think I, I one thing I wanted to point out earlier about the it's not as risky as you think is I actually I actually think that on a human level we have everything to gain by by exchanging with people in our communities because it builds trust. It's always a vulnerable thing to go into a, a transaction with someone you don't know, but Taking that leap of faith and having it usually confirmed that you can trust what's going on. You can trust your fellow human being. The guy who sold us our car, amazing dude. We spent an afternoon having coffee with him. We spent time at his place. He, I couldn't pull out that much cash. And he said, all right, well, he was a bit afraid of doing it via a wire, like a bank wire, but I did it in front of him and he trusted me. And I think we all gained a lot from just that like act of trust. It's learning to trust your fellow humans. I think that's big. And that's something that happens a lot in travel because we're forced to interact with people, different people, strangers every day almost, and you have to rely on them. Mm. But we can also develop this sense of trust, like you said, from buying and selling and taking small risks with people and realizing that they're not as big a risks as we might have thought. And this does change our behavior in life. I'm much more trustworthy of strangers than I used to be. And something I notice around this is that a lot of times the attitude you bring is what will end up happening. If you come and you trust people, they're likely one, to be trustworthy and two, they're likely to trust you back. Totally agree. And it's it's verified in my life time in, time out. So totally. The main thing about this everybody wins is that, yes, everybody wins on an individual level. But because you're not buying something new, you're not creating demand for something new. You're not creating demand on the industry to keep producing things like that are so harmful to our planet. 
over and over. We, we keep producing like things with plastic in them. We know that plastic doesn't break down. Why would you buy something that has plastic in, in, in it that's new if you can buy it secondhand? We're not perfect. I'm not saying to everyone like, hey, just overnight change everything. It's the little things. If you can buy secondhand something, just go for it. Every time I don't buy new, it's a victory. It saves raw materials, less things go to the dump, and you don't support an industry. And I think this one's worth saying a second time, is that every time we buy something, that's a signal to the industry to produce another one of those things. So the way we bring down these industries that we don't want to support or that we see are where there is a hidden cost to the environment, to the mm -hmm. collective, mm -hmm. is to stop supporting them. It's to stop being the demand side of their sales charts. Yes, totally. And I think to some extent that is a political act. Absolutely. That is... Martin Luther King, his boycotts were one of the major ways, his strategies, for having civil change. Mm -hmm. They would boycott the bus. I think it was the Montgomery boycotts. And Martin Luther King realized that we live in a consumer society and consumers have a lot of power. You can change the society you live in by changing how we consume. This is the big shift that happened four years ago when I saw that documentary. That was also around the time where I was contemplating like changing my consumption of food. I was buying more organic. I was on my way to being more plant-based. I realized that... Yes, I can go and elect the people in the offices in France. That's political moves. But my biggest political power is my credit card. It's the money that I have that I spend. Where am I spending it? What am I asking to see more of? And I think there's something there, which is a lot of people... And there's like an, a, a thing of status along with this whole like minimalism, eco thing and all that, that, oh yeah, but if I, if I buy sustainably made items that's as good i don't agree with this you're still asking for something new to be created in a world where we're suffocating under the amount of trash that we're producing because there's a lot of trash that doesn't need to be trash in the true cost documentary there's footage of piles of clothes in africa and in third world countries of things that are being sent there by by people giving it away and it's just the, those things don't decay for another hundred or more years, depending on what they're made of. And if you want to go see it firsthand, just go to somewhere like New Delhi in India. <sighs> yeah. I, I remember taking a train out of New Delhi and being moved to tears uh, as I, we drove. The train went through the slums that were shanties on the side of the train tracks. They're basically tarps built over piles and heaps and heaps of trash and there's dogs and kids picking through the trash it is it is a total post-apocalyptic world in those areas and a lot of times there's plastic and stuff being burned in the streets it's terrible so this stuff is already happening it's just for a lot of us it's not on our doorsteps yet and another thing about this status thing is here's another place where we can do a mental a mental hack that can help us is there's a lot of status in buying sustainable probably because it's visible and yeah buying sustainable is better than not buying sustainable definitely no argument there but there is more good in 
recycling something than adding to consumption.、Mm-hmm. We consume too much. The world needs less consumption. And if we can kind of make that flip and think about it in those terms, where there's actually more status in recycling things, which is Kind of contrarian because people look and say, "Oh, that's secondhand." There's kind of a you know, if、mm-hmm. you if you were the second or third sibling in a family, you know exactly what I'm talking about. It's not as cool as if it's new.、Mm. But this is a way I think we can flip that like kind of mental formula and realize, oh, this is doing a lot of good. I'm removing something from the trash and I'm preventing more consumption. If we can make that flip in our minds, it can be easier to see. It can be easier to be motivated to make these decisions on a day-to-day basis. Yeah, and I think two more things I will say about this is I feel like there's a cooties kind of thing. Oh, it has your cooties on it, or you know, if you buy something secondhand, it's dirty because someone else wore it or someone else used it. First of all, it's been washed, and you can wash it. Second of all, in the True Cost documentary, they actually pointed out that most of the cotton that we're using to make clothes is. Non-organic cotton that is being like drowned in pesticides, and it's actually better for you and like for your kids to buy cl- secondhand clothes because they've been washed and worn long enough that the pesticides and the toxic chemicals on them are gone by the time you get them. Our skin is the biggest organ of our entire body. It's the largest organ. It's the one that absorbs the most. So obviously, I mean, it's a no-brainer for me that it's actually safer, healthier, cleaner to buy secondhand than to buy new. And the second thing I want to mention is regarding this、uh, buying sustainable versus being frugal kind of thing. Is this story that I've seen? It's not really a story. It's an anecdote. A YouTuber that I follow at times is fairly zero waste, and she、uh, does a lot of videos on that theme. And she gets a lot of comments from people because she's still using an electric toothbrush. And they're like, "Oh, but why aren't you? You're zero waste. Why aren't you using a bamboo toothbrush that you can like compost or recycle or whatever?" And one time she made a small note about this in her videos, and she replied to those, and she said. I have had this electric toothbrush for the last five years. It's still working. I am not gonna throw it away to replace it with a bamboo toothbrush. I'm gonna use it all the way until it's no longer usable. And when it dies, then I'll replace it by something that's more eco-friendly. But throwing away your your things that are still working, that are not eco-friendly, quote unquote, is not eco-friendly. Yeah, it's reducing new consumption.、Yes. That's the end game. Yes. You know, we're talking about how buying secondhand prevents things from going to the dump, but there's also a reverse argument here that I think is worth mentioning. And I'm not saying that I actually, in fact, I don't even think this way that much. And I think I should think this way more, which is that perhaps the responsibility for where something finally ends up. Should be pushed more onto the buyer.、Mm. In our societies, we have trash that just disappears like magic. I think we would think about this very differently if each community, each neighborhood, had to deal with their trash within the confines of their community. We would think about it totally different. It's only because it gets carted off that do we not think about it and do we not act? Do we not take responsibility for it? 
Do you remember how upset I was when your water filter that's like plastic based, it's like a wand type of thing that you dunk, it's like UV light, it crapped out on us when we were in Sri Lanka. And in Sri Lanka, there's no trash. I mean, if there is, I never saw like a trash system come. The owner of our guest house would burn all the the, the things. And how do you burn that? You can't, you don't, that doesn't disappear. And so I think one of the kids like took it and was playing with it, but that doesn't disappear. And I was so upset that we were leaving this behind. I was almost like, let's take it back with us and have it recycled in, in our country or whatever. But this is, I think this is what you're talking about. Yeah, it is. And we're much more conscious of this now with the caravan because we have to manage all of our waste. Literally, we bury our poop. Yeah. <laughs> we manage sure. it all. We have to think about where the shower drains. We have to think about what we use with the sink because we pour that water out where the chickens eat. Mm -hmm. So we really have to think downstream of ourselves. And this is really valuable. And I think perhaps we should be asking ourselves more. We should be pushing the responsibility onto the buyer. Okay, you're going to buy something new. You're going to buy something that doesn't biodegrade, that's not easy to get rid of. Well, maybe... It's your responsibility to find a second home for that, to make sure it doesn't end up in a junkyard quite as fast. Mm. Maybe that's part of the responsibility of being a buyer instead of, oh, we can just throw it away whenever we're done with it. Perhaps it's actually, we need to be looking for a second buyer for this. We need to do the work to make a connection because the thing we bought is not recyclable, not biodegradable or whatever. Mm. I think this is important because, you know, we're exploring a couple mind frame shifts in this episode, different ways to think about it, different stories. And I think they're so powerful because it's these small stories that can make really big changes. When, we, when we're able to tell ourselves a different story about it, then we can start acting differently about it. It all begins with these small kind of just reframing it in a different way. <laughs> So let's move on to a more fun one. Number five. It's an adventure. It's an adventure. Adventure. <laughs> it's a lot of fun. Because it's so much fun. You Every time you don't know what you're going to find, you get surprised every time. There's so much opportunity. You don't know why people are giving things up. Maybe they got something. They got two gifts for a birthday. Maybe they need to turn something into cash. Maybe they're moving. There's all sorts of good reasons why things will be heavily discounted. And it's a lot of fun, at least for me, to find those deals. It can be a rush. Mm -hmm. it can, my dad is a <laughs> hardcore goodwill buyer. Yes. He just goes there for the fun of it. He, he goes to the gym every weekend, and every time he stops by goodwill and just goes in there for the thrill of it, for the adrenaline rush of finding a good deal. This goodwill is exactly it's an important place. It's where I bought the dress I will be wearing for our wedding. And dad might have even bought that dress for you. Yeah, I, can't I think, I think, because when I went with Bert, sometimes he would pay for my cart as well. So Bert, if you paid for my wedding dress, thank you. My mom will be very jealous that you did. <laughs> oh. And so you got your wedding dress for what, $5? Oh, it was, yeah, it was probably under five, maybe four. It still had the tag on it. That's how people do it. And this is another reason why it's so much fun is because... It creates a story every yes. time. I mean, there's so many things. So we've basically refurnished our entire caravan through secondhand shops. Or in donations from friends. But yeah, exactly. Yeah. 
either way, either way, it's been secondhand, and that means that almost every item has some sort of story with it. For example, there is a purple mat in the bathroom that you found. It was a great find at a secondhand shop. We were yes. looking. We wanted a purple mat. Actually, it was kind of exactly what we wanted. And then you found it the next day, and it's such a random thing, and it matches our color scheme in the bathroom perfectly. It was such a huge win. And then there's another one that's that's pretty funny is I got inspired one time and bought a <laughs> set of armor on a mantelpiece with three hooks at the bottom because I thought this would be awesome. It was cool. It's, it's like a little mini breastplate with two swords going down like toward the breastplate and then it's got like three not very useful hooks at the bottom and then so i was like we need that that's great we need hooks we're gonna get that we couldn't find anywhere for it to really work we put it on like almost every wall and then sooner or later someone said no it's not working <laughs> we finally got a place for it as a as a hat holder and a it scarf works. holder it works yeah it and, works and you just you look at it and there's that kind of background that, that like that was stupid but now it works it's, it's kind of fun yeah there's another way that the it's also kind of interesting to imagine the stories and this is one of the reason why i like to go to thrift shops and secondhand shops is to imagine the stories they must have had for their previous owners there's all sorts of amazing things in there and just to think like man what life must it have already had it's coming to you with some sort of history and i think that's a lot of fun too just to kind of imagine <laughs> And from there, we can move on to our number six and final point of this episode, which is the things don't own us. Yes, very important one. Having this kind of relationship to our things where you're buying it secondhand and you're, you're selling it, there's more of a flow. Uh, the things flow into your life and they also flow out of your life. And I think If when we make this a habit, we don't hoard things as much. There isn't such a stoppage. It's it's We use it as long as it's useful. And then when it's not, we give it to somebody else. Yeah, I think that's great, actually. I think that because of this, we see things as things that are used. There's something we can use, and that's something that we own and that we have to keep and protect at all costs. And I think this is important because really... And especially when you do a habit like this, you realize we never own anything. Even the car that I bought cash for that was totally, you know, mine. Ownership is an idea that we use because it's convenient. But really, we're always renting things. Sooner or later, you know, you're going to run out of time. Or, or even that thing you own ends up in the closet. And then it's kind of renting your mind space. Mm. Like, it's it's in your mind. You can't let it go and move on. There's only so many things we can pay attention to in our life. And sooner or later, we're all going to end up in the earth. And then we can't bring any of it with us. We're always renting things. And when we see it this way, I think there's a, a lot more freedom that comes. I feel a lot more free. I'm more free to let things go. I'm more free to make space for new things to come in. And it's a lot of fun to live like that. Another thing is when we're able to acquire things at a much lower cost, it's a lot easier psychologically to let them go. I remember when I bought a brand new, this was back in the day when I was still dreaming of being a rock star. I, my, in my philosophy, bad one, bad thinking, was, you know what I needed? 
I didn't have the motivation because I didn't have an awesome guitar that I always <laughs> wanted to play. <laughs> so I went out and I bought a uh, beautiful, glossy black, American-made Stratocaster with this massive amp. It was like a $1,500 kit. It was glorious. It was gorgeous. I felt like, you know, like modern Johnny Cash on this thing. It was beautiful. It sat in my closet for most of the time. I barely ever played it. And then it had a negative impact because I knew I had this beautiful guitar sitting in the closet that I wasn't playing. It was like this dead dream that I had shuttered. And I wasn't, well, I was so emotionally attached. I wasn't willing to get rid of it. But every time I saw it, it made me feel bad because I wasn't playing it. And it reminded me of, of this thing I, I was having a hard time letting go of, you know? When we buy new, things are very expensive and we register that, that cost that we paid for them in our minds. And when we buy used, a lot of times it's very cheap, so it's a lot easier to let it go because we don't register this high, very expensive cost. Even though, really, it doesn't matter anymore. What you paid is what you paid and now you have the thing. There's this you know, benchmark that's in our minds when we pay a lot for something like, oh, it's worth that much. And it makes it that much harder to let go of it. And it was actually the last thing I sold before I left to travel. I hadn't used it for probably five years. It just sat in my closet taking up space, but I couldn't get myself to sell it because I felt like I was selling a dream. And I think the things we own, we attach emotions, we attach dreams, we attach a lot of beliefs and, and things to them. And a lot of times they become the, the vessel for these things. It's almost like we take them out of ourselves and we put them in our things. It's like extra storage space for our, for our emotions, our, our emotions and, yeah. and our, mental, our mental phenomena. And it can be a very cathartic releasing experience to let those things go or to give them to somebody else. And for me, I was so attached to it. It was the hardest thing for me to sell. I ended up selling it. I got a decent amount of cash out of it, but it was super painful. I mean, I was almost like in tears. I was dejected that day after I gave it away. Mm. I felt like that little boy, you know, that wanted to play guitar and be a rock star. Like I had to, I had to say goodbye to that guy and, and just say, hey, you know, not, not this lifetime. <laughs> And, but it was very releasing and it was very helpful. Having that in the closet was weighing me down. Yeah. I think that the secondhand mindset, if I can call it this way, it allows things to be used and to be passed on. That's one of the things I love the most about it. When we, I was with you when you sold your car to that kid who was in high school and who had saved up for it. I still think about him fairly often. It's like we, ha we had an awesome time in this car and I'm sure you had great times with it before you even met me. But I'm so happy that instead of sitting in your parents' garage right now, waiting for us to come back, maybe use it a little bit and then do that again, that someone else is enjoying the beauty and freedom that comes with having a car that rolls really well, that works and... and And I just, you know, we were thinking about him and like how he was going to roll onto the parking lot at the first day of school and how he was going to be such a kick-ass, like, yo, man, you got a nice car. What's that? And that's, I think, the beauty of it. It's, it's okay that we attach emotional value to our things, but things are meant to be used and things are meant to be passed on. 
And I feel like by doing that, we keep the flow of life going and running. This is a good place to stop. Yeah, it might be. <laughs> Well, as always, thank you, our dear listener, for making it through another episode of the Far Out Podcast. Thank you. We hope you enjoyed this one. Yes, we enjoyed recording it. Yes. And we enjoy having you along on the journey. We had a question for you. If you have a story about buying something secondhand or selling something that you'd like to share, we'd like to hear it. So if you have a good story about it, you can... Leave it in the comments at thefaroutpodcast.com. Just go to this particular episode. Or you can email us at host at thefaroutpodcast.com. Another thing that we need to mention on these outros is, guys, if you like this, if you if this is your first episode listening to us and you like this, subscribe to the Far Out Podcast. You can do it on your platform where you're listening to us, iTunes, whatever. It's free. There's just a button that says subscribe. And then... You get all our episodes as they come out and you can even auto-download them so that you can listen to them on the go. And also, while you're over on iTunes subscribing to us, do leave us a review. Yes, please. We would really appreciate it. It helps the podcast grow. A lot. Yeah. And if you've enjoyed this conversation, share it with friends. Sharing's caring. Yeah. Also, one more thing is that if you enjoyed this episode and you'd like to hear more about the actual tips, tactics, and strategies about buying and selling, mainly on Craigslist. We have a lot of ideas and thoughts about this that don't fit into one episode, and we'd love to share them. So if you'd like to hear about that, let us know. Even if one person reaches out to us, it'll give us a lot more motivation to do the work involved to bring you that episode, and we'd love to, but we don't want to do it if, if uh, we don't think anyone uh, anyone cares is that everything that was everything toodles toodles <laughs>